Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, dearies. Welcome to Undersampled Radio episode 59. Coming up on another power of two. That's exciting. Indeed. Uh, We have some rich content for you. What's it? You have a mug of your building? Oh, yeah, of course. Cool. Nice. For those of you who can't see, this is a South Shore hub. Yeah. Coffee mug or tea mug in his case. With our old branding, we've we've rebranded since oh. then. Yeah, gotcha. We have a much sharper I'll, image now. Also, if you're if you're listening to the podcast, it's too bad because you can't see Matt's cool "I am AI" shirt. Boom. Very nice, Nvidia. Um, so, because <laughs> by the way, so they were handing these out at the end of the hackathon. I guess oh? that's that's why you missed it. So Nvidia uh, brought a couple of bags full of shirts, which was kind of Awesome of them, and um, Evan picked one up for me. But I was glad he did because I didn't get a hackathon shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. What a loser. Um, well, I got a hackathon shirt, but not a, an Nvidia shirt. So. Right. See. Not all is lost. <laughs> so it seems that Matt here has run across very intriguing astrological, phenomenological, inspirological document <laughs> yeah well I where just, did this thing uh, come from well i so I, I just moved rooms into another one of our little booths here. without sound without here sound isolation is this does the sound worse today no but i can see on the wall that there's no sound padding panel again. right but it's 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 coming it I've, sounds, I, it sounds okay. yeah uh okay good um I mean, I don't want to make it sound like that little foam padding thing isn't doing anything, but it sounds pretty good in that room that you're in right now. No, it's here. It just isn't on the wall. Oh, I see. All right, good. And so it is this doing. This is something. not an insubstantial thing. Like, check check it out. It, oh, yeah. it's pretty thick, and it's made of wood and? with like about I don't know a substantial amount of full-on insulation inside it, and then it's covered in speaker. Um, like wool, some kind so, of video covering. Let's. What, what would you say that's about? Um, uh, what, what dimensions would you say that's about? Uh, two it's, feet by four feet. Oh, in those sort of units, I'd say it's about half a meter by um, about two meters long, meter and a yeah. half. Oh, okay, well, a little bigger than that. Okay, so uh, we're looking for an undersampled radio listener who's got lots of SolidWorks, ex- not, not SolidWorks, com- uh, console experience to um, model Matt's podcasting booth uh, with its res- with respect to its acoustic <laughs> properties and tell him where's the best place to put that panel. Yeah, I, I have two of these. And yeah. then I've, I've got a few more things which are, are sitting in my Amazon cart waiting to be ordered, but I'm unsure about ordering them because they seem basically just like bits of foam. So I'm not, I don't know. You could just dangle them from the ceiling. 
Yeah, the ceiling already has, uh, I can sort of show you, there's, uh, they're probably pointing in the wrong direction. As you can see, there are some sort of beams up there. Yes. Um, which must help a little bit. Because apparently it's the corners too that mess you up when it comes to acoustics. They yeah. have like... You need a seamless room. Reverberation, yeah. Yeah. Anechoic chamber. Mm. Um, anyway, <laughs> you were asking me about this piece of paper. So oh, I indeed, moved... yes. The so the story was, it's not really a story. Uh, I've already spent too long. <laughs> Basically, <laughs> I moved into a different booth than the one I'm usually in. We've got three of these things. Um, because there was someone next door in the other one, and I guess we didn't do a bang-up job on the soundproofing because I could hear them. And um, and I come in here, and there's a piece of paper on the desk already, and it caught my eye because the the, the headings on the paper are... The first one is tourmaline in matrix quartz, and then it's tourmaline and quartz and rutilated quartz. So this must be some scientific article then. Well, exactly, right? And I'm, I'm the only geologist in the village, ah. so, uh, so I'm immediately like, wait a second, this isn't mine. Where's this come from? What is, you know, I'm just curious. And, um, and then I read further, <laughs> and it turns out, indeed, I am still the only geologist in the village, um, because... I'll I'll tell you what it says underneath tourmaline as the these are the the properties of the mineral tourmaline. Please. Uh, grounding. So I'm like, oh, electrically grounding. Is that what that means? Because uh, <laughs> I think tourmaline does conduct electricity, doesn't it? If I'm not mistaken, deflects negative energy slash protects energy field. So that's worth knowing. It also has a clearing effect, and it helps to release worries slash fears so um those were new it, it is the year of the rabbit you know yeah and then it gets i mean quartz sounds like the really awesome one i i, I need to get some quartz from somewhere um energy not only does it energize it expands your consciousness apparently and increases your psychic abilities as well as increasing focus and amplifying your energy and then it says there's a little footnote just to just in case that wasn't enough. It also assists those who must work in challenging environments or circumstances. So all is not lost if you're in a, um, a challenging environment. What would that be? Um, well, if, you, you work, if you were a lawyer. If you're a lawyer. Or a politician. <laughs> um, or you know, facing danger on a daily basis, you might get some psychic abilities from a piece of quartz. So I guess someone around here, and if I find them, I'll let you know. Someone around here is doing some sort of uh, what they call integrative wellness therapy. Um, and this was a special newsletter for the autumnal equinox. Of course, of course, yeah, Jupiter is aligned with Mars. Is, um, how does one apply these minerals? Uh, did you circle them with um, your head? Grind them well, up and put them in your food? It uh, it doesn't go into any details of the applications. I assume you grind them up and rub them all over your body. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but it, it's, yeah, I don't know. I wish it said it's uh, it's frustratingly brief. Actually, <laughs> I feel like I can't. There aren't any actionable items here. It's really just a list of mineral properties. Mm -hmm. so, bit of a downer. Actually. Bit of a downer actually caused me to um, feel a bit low, ironically. 
Well, um, you know, it's not a bit of a downer. <laughs> what? <laughs> I, yeah, I can think of some things, but what okay. do you have in mind? Um, I got a new job. You got a job? Someone gave you a job? It's unbelievable. For real? Unbelievable. <laughs> but yes. Yeah, I've but been, yes. been on sort of on tenterhooks because I've been hearing rumors about this. Yeah. Oh, really? It's, yeah. uh, it's, it's hit the grapevine. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to be the data science lead for a company called Expiro Inc. in Austin. Yeah, I've heard uh, of them. Which means that I'm moving to Austin. That's pretty exciting. So get your fill of this office. Um, you know, this this beautiful view, this beautiful bookshelf in the back with tourmalines on it, um, because it's <laughs> out of here, baby. So it's going to be a wholesale move, no looking back. But well, the music and barbecues. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> tacos, many tacos in my future. That's pretty exciting. Austin's awesome. Well, Austin's awesome, but also um, the company is awesome. They specialize in building uh, boutique software solutions for uh, customers who are not necessarily your typical user. Um, they build, um, you know, expert-focused systems for specific yeah. domains, and the problems that they're solving require specialized skill sets. And so every single one of the problems they're working on is very deep and very fascinating. So uh, it's going to be cool that, to um, get to play with their data, build out some um, analytic solutions for them. And um, I don't know. We'll see what happens. It's going to be awesome. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that sounds really cool. I, I, I'm only familiar with, so remind me of the name of Sebastian's company that they merged with slash bought. The called. old company was called Palladium. So when Palladium, we had right. on the show months, years, years yeah. like wow, the, ago. It was like the second or third episode or something, yeah. I think. It was Palladium and um, the other company was Xpiro and they right. when they merged, they used the branding of the uh, Xpiro company. Yeah, yeah. I feel like they merged like right Sorry. after that conversation with Sebastian actually. Um, yeah, it was pretty pretty soon thereafter. But I know he wow. gets involved in some really awesome, fascinating, in, like problems, like full-on technical computing problems, like HPC sort of level stuff. So, and well, um, Xpero had a background in sort of UI and it, that kind of thing, didn't they? Mostly like more software engineering and experience, user experience. Right. Yeah. So um, Xpero Legacy Xpero was a was a UX company, and right. uh, Palladium was a scientific computing company, and so. Uh, the merge is kind of a perfect fit, and totally. it's uh, the stuff they build now is. I mean, you're talking about making ridiculously complicated solutions look slippy and yeah. work on mobile, basically. Right. I mean, like, can you like doing an RTM on on your cell phone? Right, so, right. Yeah, uh, it's pretty awesome. cool. Yeah, yeah, that's very exciting, man. Well done. Yes. Congrats. Thank you. Congratulations. And um, so, what's your sort of timeline? Do you know yet? Um, yep, we're moving over there in just a few weeks, so or a month or so. So, um, yep, we're we're actually headed there this weekend to go look at places to live. Okay, um, going to rent for a while to evaluate the the market before we buy a place. Yeah, because you're going to need a place with uh, some sort of studio, podcasting studio <laughs> built in, I guess. So it's going to take a while to find the just the right thing. That's right. 
Um, so you can just go ahead and uh, send me some of those foam panels, and uh, I'll get set up. Yeah, awesome. So I don't know what um, the undersampled radio schedule is going to be, but I assume we're going to have more uh, evening episodes. Your favorite. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And you could probably make a decent, um, a decent little makeshift studio in the back of a U-Haul. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Or my Jeep. Buy all your belongings. Yeah. Probably make quite a good uh, acoustic environment, actually. Maybe I'll just broadcast it of Zilker Park. Have a nice, <laughs> have a nice uh, nature scene in the background. Um, so, what is this Global Day of Code retreat you're talking about here? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> That's brief. why it's in the news. <laughs> in brief, I have no idea. Uh, okay, so the only reason I know anything about it at all is because um, Steve Purvis, uh, I, and I'm thinking he might have even talked about it on when when he was on the show. Um, he did one last year, pro I think for the Global Day. So in Tenerife, a bunch of coders got together. I don't think they really sort of knew each other. Um, it's kind of like a hackathon, oh, yes. one day thing. And they, but they, but you only work on um, uh, what's it called? You know, the automaton uh, game of life um, code or problem. That was just that one year. Conway's game of life. No, I think that's. I, Okay, maybe it was. I don't know. That does seem like that would make sense to have a different thing every year. Um, <laughs> I was watching a video about hosting one of these because there aren't any around me. So if I wanted to go to one, I'd have to host it basically or convince someone else to host it. Would you be the only one there? Um, possibly. Evan, Evan would be. <laughs> and they mentioned Conway's good game of life. And then I thought, oh, wait a second. Oh, well, rather. You have made me think, wait a second, yeah, maybe that was just that one year. But anyway, to work on a specific problem, and you work in these kind of little sprints, 45 minutes, I believe, uh, roughly every hour. And after each sprint, there is a um, like a, a review or a look back for sort of lessons learned. How did it go? What, you know, what kind of solutions did you come up with? The emphasis is on writing um, uh, code that adheres to the solid principles and if you don't it's know what they are you'll have to look it up because i really haven't no, no recollection but it's basically five principles of coding and uh, essentially object-oriented coding writing um good reusable code in an object-oriented pattern and okay, um, do you want to list them off go on then. Yeah. solid s single responsibility principle principle Oh, open closed principle. This doesn't make any sense unless I read the descriptions. Okay, <laughs> let's start again. Solid. S, single responsibility principle. A class should have only a single responsibility. Makes sense. Okay. O, open closed principle. Software entities should be open for extension but closed for modification. Okay. Don't like that one so much, I see. I, I'm just not sure that <laughs> I understand the distinction. I'd have to dig into it, but yeah, cool. L. Liskov substitution principle. Oh, yeah. I mean, obviously. Objects in a program <laughs> should be replaceable with instances of their subtypes without altering the correctness of the program. Okay. I, interface segregation principle. Many client-specific interfaces are better than one general purpose interface. 
Hmm. I'll buy it. D, dependency inversion principle. One should depend upon abstractions, not concretions. Concretions? All right, well, there you go. Okay, there it is. So, I think one way to find out more about the solid principles would be to go to a, one of these uh, Global Day of Code Retreat events. Uh, I believe there are code retreats, like companies do them, they happen throughout the year. It's not just this one day. Um, the 18th of November, by the way, is the Global Day of Code Retreat. You can go to the link that's in the show notes, but it's something like coderetreat.org, yes. um, and find an event near you. Uh, one, but, so one of the intriguing features of these code retreat events is that after every mini sprint of 45 minutes or so, um, you burn all your code. So you delete <laughs> everything. Sounds solid. So you, yeah. So, um, and apparently that, I guess, rankles some people or um, is quite an emotionally difficult thing to do after you've been hacking on something for a little while. But um, it's apparently one of the features of, uh, of Code Retreat, which is a kind of movement. I like there's a there's something deeper at work here than just getting together and hacking. Yeah. So I've been kind of poking through the website while you were talking, and I though I've clicked on several uh, local events, hmm. I didn't I didn't find any themes. So uh, take that for. Well, yeah, possibly they announced the theme later or at the last minute. I'm not sure. Um, there are actually, I think, four upcoming um, days where you can learn how to be a facilitator of one of these meetings. So I imagine they'll explain a little bit more about it there. They do have they they recommend that you go to a code retreat before facilitating. Um, you know, but that doesn't seem to be an option for everybody. So. Um, they, they know that some people haven't been to them before. So there is a bit of an explanation. And there are lots of them online too. Like they recorded all the ones from last year, like I said. So I, I watched one of those and it was, um, you know, it's interesting. It's all just based on the idea that, you know, practice makes perfect kind of thing. That, that it's a good thing to take a day out and focus on your craft um, for a day. And it is aimed at software engineers, not random scientists. But I think we can all get better at software engineering uh for the because it is a whole day and it is a kind of um you know uh extracurricular activity is on a saturday so that's another thing that might not fit for everybody but still there you go so are you gonna host one uh i'm gonna do one of these um i think there's a the first facilitator training is next week online mm -hmm. so i was gonna do that and see what is find out a bit more about it gotcha Hmm. Cool. Well, it sounds exciting, and um, maybe I'll fly up to Nova Scotia and come. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> oh well. Hey, um, so we were talking the other day about the uh, giant GPU, hmm. basically workstations, for hmm. doing various computational tasks. And um, one of the people we were talking to about this turns out uh, offers them for sale through a company that might be on your t-shirt. Okay. Uh, yeah, so that's it. NVIDIA sells a unit called the DGX. There's various flavors of these things. Mm -hmm. um, you buy one of these things, set, put it on your desk, press the on button, 
It's just like a it's just like a PC, just like a desktop. No problemo. It's one hundred fifty thousand US dollars, and uh, and no problem. So you just you just do whatever you want on it. Yeah, and it comes preloaded, I think, with all the libraries, and they are quote unquote tuned for the DGX hardware, which I don't totally understand what that means, but. Um, you know, it's it's fully it's a fully supported deep learning platform. It isn't just a computer out of the box kind of thing. And then, in fact, the way the NVIDIA guy described it to me at the hackathon was that about fifty percent of the price is the software support maintenance stuff. It isn't, you know, and the other fifty percent is the hardware. I don't get it. Wait, so uh, you can call them and say, "How do I install TensorFlow?" Or no. It comes with TensorFlow, and they update it for you. Essentially, it's a self-maintaining machine. They release updates that for it. Cost seventy-five thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. All open source software. Uh, well, uh, okay. So cool. Um, they seem to be selling these things. So uh, more power to them. And if you apparently want to they are do that for you, that's excellent. Apparently they are selling them, and. Um, you know, I think people are attracted to the sort of the fact that it works out of the box and they won't be spending a lot of time setting it up or anything. That's kind of one of the features of it. Um, there is another, I'm there is another um, computer that they sell. Uh, I'm struggling to find it online. Um, but there is another sort of high performance desktop workstation that is, I believe, $60,000. Um, and mere fraction doesn't GX. have the Volta cards in it. Oh, I think it's probably this HGX. Um, anyway, I'm not sure. You'll be have to dig around on the website and see if you can find it. Um, you know, it doesn't have the same kind of cards in it, um, but it's still super awesome or whatever. I think it's got fewer cards. So not because I think the DGX one with V100s has got forty thousand CUDA cores in it. And it's got this new um, Tensor Core technology that they're touting. Oh yeah, sort of... TPUs, right? I've I've heard about this on the on the TensorFlow. Is this what you're talking about? Yeah, I think TPUs are the are their Google's hardware engineering uh -huh, for yeah. TensorMath, and uh, Nvidia have got some kind of tuned flavor of. GPU essentially, it's a tweak. I don't know how much marketing there is in there, but it's a it's a tweaked GPU for higher speed matrix multiplication. I think basically, and yeah, I guess one of the features of their Tensor Core technology, they're saying, is um, it it works in training um, uh, as well as in inference. Right, so because the, the Google's TPUs only work on inference, they don't work on training. So Nvidia is kind of pushing the, hey, you know, you want to train faster, like you need these technologies. And also tied in with that, they've got this NVLink, which is kind of relevant to what you're talking about, where they're trying to make it much easier to push data back and forth between the CPU and the GPUs, because that's right. one of the bottlenecks. Yes. So all that stuff's baked into all this technology in ways that I don't really understand, but is. Is it worth buying it? I don't know. I mean, it would be really interesting to do kind of a side by side with 
I don't know, whatever your alternative is, like oh, here we go. sitting around waiting for your 1080s to finish or buying it on Amazon's cloud or whatever. Huh, look at this. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, we, we have various ways of doing these things if we don't care about getting it sort of black box solutions. Just press the on button and go. And uh, one of these, one of the solutions to do this is to use one of those big AWS instances. So the biggest one they rent right now is uh, $14.40 per hour, which comes out to 126,144 US dollars per year. Right. So if you ran a DGX full time for a year, you, you basically pay for it. Right. But it and it has comparable specs, does it? Uh, in fact, I think it's actually a, the DGX is a little bit faster machine than the uh, than that AWS instance. Right. And then certainly the AWS instance isn't optimized, whatever that means, for uh, hardware. Um, right. So when, when the NVIDIA guy was telling us about this, I questioned whether um, people like data scientists would see a, a lot of benefit from their uh, comes out of the box with all the stuff installed mm. options. Is it, um, most of the people that I talk to wouldn't care about that. Um, um, I'm certain they definitely care about the big hardware. I mean, that's awesome. Um, I think um, I'd, I I wouldn't recommend. I mean, I don't know enough about it, but right now with my low level of understanding, I, I would say I wouldn't spend $150,000 on it. Um, there are some alternatives out there. Mm -hmm. Right, like stringing a bunch of GPU cards together in a box. Yeah, you have some experience with that. Uh, well, no, I just have single single ones, and I, I have been wondering if you can easily make these kind of you know quote unquote virtual GPUs out of multiple GPUs, so that you can just sort of say, you know, GPU equals true in your code and it just works kind of thing. But I'm gathering that that is not possible. So for instance, if you have multiple NVIDIA cards in your desktop computer and you want to use them for gaming, there's a technology they have called SLI, which combines the cards into a sort of single graphics engine. Um, SLI doesn't work with CUDA. So, mm -hmm. you, you, uh, so at that point, you then have to also be doing a kind of parallel processing style architecture in your code where you have some kind of master that gives jobs to all of these GPUs and coordinates that. So there's a little bit more complexity when you've got multiple GPUs, I gather. Um, some libraries know. handle those types of distributions uh, elegantly, not automatically, but elegantly. Um, yeah, right. So it depends what's implemented in the, whatever, you're, whatever tools you're using. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm close to springing for a second sort of slave 1080, um, and I, you know, just again, just to speed things up, because um, I'm crunching through a lot of simulations at the moment. It's not really for deep learning right now. Um, you know, uh, and I guess I'm just wondering. Hang on, at what point should I just 
build a computer <laughs> with lots of cards in it. Um, uh, but, but I'm not quite there yet. So we've got a link in the show notes to this uh, sort of hacked together solution. They're, they've named the Deep Learning 10. Mm. Uh, the website is servethehome.com. I, I gather these people do a bunch of these hacked together kind of solutions. Um, this looks yeah. like they have eight GTX 1080 Ti's. And it cost them fifteen thousand uh, dollars, all up for the hardware. And they mentioned in here somewhere that I can't find right now. I think they said a thousand dollars a month in electricity and all the ancillaries. Yeah, power, rack space, bandwidth, cables. Thousand dollars a month. <laughs> I mean, at some point, yeah, you like don't forget these. I mean, these things are like three kilowatts potentially. Right. Um, so it's going to be a substantial drain on your power or your air conditioning yes. load or whatever. <laughs> but um, yeah, so maybe you also have to rent an office in Alaska. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you know, I mean, joking aside, yeah. In, if you live in a cold country in the winter time, it is actually potentially you could save some money on your heating bill. We could burn a little bit less heating oil by having a couple of computers sitting in the corner of the room. Um, Anyway, <laughs> well, it's cool. I mean, I, you know, I'm kind of thinking about how to optimize costs when doing, um, like, when productionizing models for clients, and right. uh, this this becomes a big consideration. So you, uh, you know, you've got some capex on the compute, which you can just, you know, like amortize as um, a rented compute or whatever, and then you've got some opex in in runtime uh, resources like power and cooling and stuff. Um, so I, I don't know what the answer is. I, maybe, um, as you say, it'd be cool to see a comparison of some of these different architectural solutions um, side by side with with both CapEx and OpEx uh, forecasts. So uh, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to do a detailed job on that. So um, if someone knows of a resource, please send it over to us. Um, yeah, it's interesting though. I mean, you know, we're we're using more and more and more of this stuff daily. Yeah, yeah, and and like I, you know, uh, said I think on the show before, um, <laughs> you know, this stuff might seem like oh, you know, who cares about like these kind of HPC um, like high performance computing problems? That's kind of for the server room, but you know, we're literally just trying to do um, simulations. You know, and it's it's we're not writing a lot of code here. We're just uh, building some small simulations with a Python tool called GPR Max for GPR data. Um, doesn't take all that long to get into it. It's nothing particularly complicated about it. Someone else wrote the solver, and they just take ages and ages. To, like you literally can't run them on a CPU. Like it's it's right. that it, that's the problem is they you can't do it. So. Um, I, I wasn't expecting to have to care this much about this sort of technology for doing random geophysics stuff, but actually at some point you just need to get on with your work, right? Yep. So um, it's kind of interesting how you can run into that on a fairly everyday kind of problem. Anyway. So, uh, cool, I'm, I'm into it. I, I would love to um, see one of these DGX machines. Oh yeah, um, me too. Just just play with it for an hour. I think it would be fascinating. I asked um, I asked them if they might be able to come to a future hackathon with one, and he sort of said, 
they're basically built to order. So no, <laughs> they, they don't have it. It's not like we have a room full of these DGX things. Um, you know, we just go and grab one out of inventory. It's not like that at all. So yeah, he didn't seem to think that was going to happen. Hey, here's on a related note. This is kind of burning me up. Um, so I use a lot of I use a lot of uh, rented compute, and uh, there's this new platform we mentioned last time called Paperspace. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and it's it's lovely. It's great so far. Um, their interface is really nice. Uh, their uh, instances are easy to use, uh, but they're they haven't been responding to me. And it's oh. driving me nuts. So um, to rent one of their, much like these, the Amazon uh, GPU instances, you need approval from the company. Right. That's Paperspace again. Uh, to to use some of those larger instance types. And um, on their website, once you sign up for an account, you basically just click what type of instance you'd like in operating system. And if you click on a GPU instance, it says you can't do that yet. You have to be approved. Hmm. So weeks ago, I sent an approval request, and uh, I got some emails back from them, kind of saying, "Oh, well, what type of GPU do you really need?" And, right. uh, and that's weird. I, yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's really. I mean, at first, it seemed reasonable. Okay, I get it. You don't want spammers. You know, you don't want some scam going on where they they use a bunch of compute and they don't pay for it. But um, no, no word from Paperspace here for the past uh, two weeks on my request. So, uh, yeah, I mean, okay. you do wonder a little bit about the longevity of some of these cloud providers. Right. They kind of flare up and then disappear again. I don't know. It's a bit frustrating. What's colored inversion? Um, well, uh, I was gonna, I was gonna segue elegantly into. Quantum computing, but we can maybe leave. Oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no I, don't, sorry. I don't know anything about it. I retract. Quantum. I retract that statement. Um, <laughs> well, so computers are neat, <laughs> but they're kind of slow and they operate on a. Uh, do you have anything that could help? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> on the subject, on the subject of doing geophysics faster. Um, yeah, um, Paige Bailey, who uh, we've mentioned on the show, and we've tried to get her on the show, but we haven't succeeded in uh, actually making that happen yet. We will. So, Paige, if you're listening, email me. Yeah, please. Um, she uh, recently started working at Microsoft, uh, which is kind of cool. You know, she was a geophysicist at Chevron before. Um, now she's at Microsoft doing cloud stuff. She's full of beans. She's full of very sort of creative ideas and. Um, she was, and lately she's been just totally uh, full of enthusiasm for all of uh, Microsoft's various sort of cloud offerings, from Azure Notebooks to their machine learning stuff, so on. She's big into machine learning, and she was at some sort of event where they were trying out quantum computing, and I was like, "Whoa, that's kind of interesting," because cool, you know, I've been looking at quantum computing out of the corner of my eye, uh, so so it sort of made my. Um, Got my curiosity up, but um, obviously there aren't. Well, there are a handful of actual quantum computers around, but um, given how difficult they are to build and how small they are, and what kind of tiny jobs they're working on um, today, if you are interested in sort of figuring out how to use a quantum computer, you have to use a simulator. So mm -hmm. you use a piece of software on a regular computer that works like a quantum computer would and simulates it. 
And um, there are lots of these simulators around. Uh, Microsoft have one called Liquid. Um, and Paige was at some sort of tutorial where they were hacking around a bit with Liquid and running some simple quantum computing simulations. Um, and it it's kind of nice. Like I, 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 you know, I was traveling that day, so I downloaded it at the airport and played with it on the plane on the way home. Uh -huh. And as it comes with a bunch of simulations that you can run, like prepackaged little scripts that you can pass some parameters to. So, for example, factoring numbers, um, and you can watch the simulator going through the process of making qubits and entangling qubits. Which Finding out if cats are alive or dead. For, yeah, and converging on a probabilistic answer. Because um, this is what quantum computers do, I guess, is they they can do a very wide range of probabilistic calculations and then kind of give one outcome. It's a little bit like a kind of MapReduce approach to solving problems. It's just they live in this kind of weird quantum probability space. And there's a chance that the answer they come back with is erroneous. So it, the quantum computer simulations can also simit or compute what the probability of a reliable answer is before they start kind of thing. Um, so it's a completely different approach, obviously, to computing, potentially extremely fast and powerful. Um, so I mean, the, the example that people always trot out is like finding the prime factors of extremely large numbers takes a bazillion years on a CPU is essentially impossible and you know could take 12 seconds on a quantum computer kind of thing so um anyway one of the liquid examples was uh, as a linear algebra example finding the um finding the inverse of a matrix uh, which is something I've been you know blogging about a little bit stuff recently so I was trying to get that one working uh, and was unable to do anything particularly interesting. So I was going to say to our listeners, if anyone fancies playing around with these quantum computer simulations and can come up with a nice kind of AX equals B, uh, GM equals D kind of linear inversion, a toy linear inversion problem, I'd be really interested in that. Um, and potentially building a tutorial out of it, right? I mean, uh, I'm not sure SEG is ready for a quantum computing tutorial, but yeah, sure, that would be awesome. I would love that. Um, there are a few other projects I was just going to mention other than Liquid, because Liquid is not open source, and they get some flack for that. Uh, there's Project Q, which is uh, out of ETH Zurich. Uh, it's a Python uh, quantum simulator. It's completely open source. Uh, D-Wave, the Canadian company that Google has been doing a lot of quantum computing research with, um, have a thing called QB Solve, which I'm not sure if it's Python, but it certainly has a Python interface. Um, and there's QuizKit or QIS Kit from IBM, which is also Python. And I'm, I think is yeah, it's on GitHub, so I guess it's open source. And um, of course, IBM are big into this stuff as well. So yeah. As you were saying that, I was taking a note in the show notes about deep wave quantum computers. You can actually buy one. I Seriously, think. really? I think. Like a three qubit computer or something? The D-Wave 2000Q system. You can buy it. Yes. Yeah. awesome. I so want one. Well, you think that 
DGX is expensive. <laughs> how, does this say how much it is? No, God, no, no, no. This is th th no. This is. Uh, if you have to ask, you, it's not for you. Oh my God, it's huge. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a room's full worth of stuff. But that's mostly refrigerator. That's it's a dilution refrigerator that surrounds the actual. Yeah, computational right. elements because <laughs> it has to compute at a almost absolute Kelvin. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so uh, you can buy one. I'm gonna. I'll. I'll. Undersampled radio price tag on this thing. We're we're gonna do uh, prices right um, rules here. Uh, closest without going over. My guess is for this computer. My guess is uh, seven million dollars. What's your guess, Matt? Yeah, I was gonna say four. So yeah. Yeah. Okay. So if anyone knows, if anyone's had uh, inside information there from D-Wave and can give us the answer. Um, okay. I know how much it costs. How do you know? I just Google said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you want me to? I wanted inside. Yeah, Dan, go ahead. <laughs> well, you win. <laughs> it's okay. 15, 15 million. 15 million. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, I won't be buying one soon. I no, I no longer want one, but um, <laughs> <laughs> the the Microsoft folks at some event the other day were waving around a quantum chip. Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite a, are they calling it a quip? <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, but I guess I mean it can't be doing actual quantum. Yeah, I think it's one of these. Uh, what do they call it? Uh, it's some. It's a, it's a simulator on a chip. I think I don't yeah. really know. Anyway, it's kind of a fun parallel universe of computing. Yes. <laughs> so uh, I'm looking at some generative systems these days. And uh, one of the things I just found out about this yesterday, and it's really exciting. There is a new um, network architecture out there, an image translation network architecture, which mm -hmm. operates in an unsupervised fashion. It's crazy. Is your, how is your mind blowing right now? Yeah. Um, so it's called the, I don't know what they're calling. It. Yeah, I do. It's called unit, which stands for something that I'm going to tell you right now. No, I can't find the acronym. I'm going to guess that unit stands for unsupervised image translation system or something like that. Um, but it's based on um, a combination of Variational autoencoders with generative adversarial neural net well, networks, not necessarily neural networks. Um, so the acronym they're using is VAE, V-A-E for variational autoencoder, GAN, generative adversarial network, VEGAN, which sounds a lot like vegan. But anyway, so pretty cool. So the idea is that um, there is a joint probability um, assumption made in the latent space of the network. So you've somehow the two endpoints have to be related in this joint probability state. Um, so now I haven't gotten this thing running yet, but I assume that what that means is for effective results, you've got to have image pairs. You can't have random data on the ends. So no. I'm not. I'm not sure. I mean, if that is true, then I don't think this thing really has a huge amount of of uh, no. additional usage. 
uh, right. compared to something like a Pix2Pix network, uh, which, which, in case you don't know, is a is a supervised image translation network. How so, would it, I don't understand if you how would it, how it would be different from that if you needed image pairs? They wouldn't have to be late. They wouldn't have to be pairs. They would just have to be clusters. So. Oh, okay. um, in the Pix2Pix network, in case you haven't played with it, um, you have you literally have image pairs, uh, right. training data, training label, boop, 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 back and forth. In this architecture, the unit architecture, you certainly have to have a group of images, you know, mm. a, a set of images which has X property and a set of images which has Y property. That's, That's what you're true. translating between. So this it's sort of weakly supervised, feels like, rather uh, than unsupervised. Uh, uh, I mean, in practice, it's if from, from a practical business solution standpoint, it's an unsupervised problem. Right. However, if you if you necessarily must have corresponding data, then then you're right. It isn't purely an unsupervised experiment. Now, my question and one that I'm going to answer, I'm going to attempt to answer over the next two weeks is uh, whether the joint probability distribution in the latent space is necessarily dependent on identical pairs of right. training data. So what that means is I, I would like to try to translate back and forth between images while training on uh, real examples of data. So uh, maybe you don't have, in the, in the uh, modeled sense, in the supervised setting, you would have say, image one with noise, image one without noise, image two with noise, image two without noise, et cetera. In the sort of semi-supervised setting we're talking about, you would have image one, two, three, four with noise, and then image, not in the same order, two, four, one, two, yeah, without well, noise. But not, yeah, I mean, completely different um, scenarios, right? I mean, right. If, if it was seismic data, they could be from a different survey. Right, so that's the question that I need to answer. Do they have to be from the same um, um, marginal distribution? Right, is what that would be in, in probabilistic terms, or can they be from you know um, mutually exclusive um, sets? So we'll I see. Mean, like most, uh, like most deep learning sort of image translation papers, the results are. The, the, the little video GIF things on there in the paper or on the website that you link to, yeah, just amazing. Amazing. They're, they're totally incredible. Like the, the first one is a video from a car driving along the road, just taken out of the front of the car. And the road, it's a winter scene with snow, no leaves on the trees. It's cloudy, white gray sky. It's legit winter. That's what you input into the network. Yeah. And the image is translated to the same scene in the summer. <laughs> and it's complete, like there are leaves on the trees, the sky is blue, it's sunny, and it's exactly the same, like everything's in the same place. It's I mean, amazing. It's completely incredible. And so I didn't look that closely at what the input sets were, how, how closely related the summer scenes that they provided were. I assume I was, my assumption was that they were it was a completely separate set of images, and I also didn't look to see if it was video or f photographs that they trained on. But 
So that, that just comes back to the same question, which is, I, I think this is sort of like a binary argument. Either the training examples have to be identical pairs or they don't. Yeah, except no, like you said, there is something in the middle where they're not identical, but they still have to be somewhat sort of mappable. Well, I'm hoping that's the case. I, I don't yeah, know that, that would be very well. Even that would be quite powerful. Yes. If they're completely unrelated, then it seems like sorcery. No, well, you can't. <laughs> you can't show it um, apples to oranges translation training images and expect it to translate between dogs and cats. No, but I mean, so in other words, is it? It was the corresponding with the corresponding summer images that it was trained on. People driving long roads. Or was it like Google Street View on sunny days, or like gotcha. some completely gotcha. like non-related, you know, pictures yeah. of cows in fields, um, yeah. whatever? Like, well, that's what I'm hoping to test. That would be amazing. And so, just to wrap up this little tangent, I guess I um, at the hackathon there was a team who was interested in doing uh, demultiple right. uh, processing on seismic data. So. Um, multiples are a type of coherent noise in seismic images. Now, I suggested to them that they could use a generative network architecture to perform that solution. And in the case of a pix-to-pix -pix network or cycle GAN or something like that, um, which is a supervised experiment again, uh, the answer is yes, you can do that. Um, so I want to do an experiment, and I'm going to, as I say, over the next couple weeks, do an experiment where um, I try to denoise seismic records using this unsupervised architecture. Right. Um, and my plan is just to use various types of um, non-uncorrelated noise sources with the, uh, with the seismic sections. And um, if it works, I'm going to uh, you know, ping them and send them the code, send that team the code, and um, and then they can they can move forward with their D multiple experiment, which I think is one step more complicated. Yeah, um, yeah, cool. That's I mean it's fascinating. I think fascinating. Are you going to focus then on just sort of incoherent noise, like random noise? Yeah, yeah. Let I them mean, worry about coherent noise. Yeah, I think it would be cool. What what I originally planned on doing was doing their was performing their experiment, <laughs> right. but then I realized that they're they're probably more interested in, in actually solving that than I am. So if I can give them one step in that direction, I think that would be cool. Uh, what, uh, do you remember the team in uh, Paris that um, were looking at classifying different coherent noise trains on shot records? Yes. Uh, how were they doing that? I can't remember their approach. This, they had a variety of ideas in the beginning about how to attack a problem. They used an unsupervised approach to solve the problem. And as I recall, at the end of the day, they used something that was a fairly standard algorithm to do clustering. And I think they used k-means. Um, oh, OK. I don't remember how the experiment turned out. Now, I, I, I suggested to them in the beginning that they use something that was less linearly um, dependent than, than something like k-means. Uh, DB scan or something, uh, and in fact, what I would have 
liked to see was the self-organizing map architecture. The nonlinearity in those clusters, I think, would give you trouble. Uh, but yeah, so it's done in an unsupervised setting, but that's sort of a you know, completely different approach to the uh, to yeah, a Right. Yeah, yeah. No, they, uh, it says in my notes, um, I'll put the link in the show notes, um, they use an SVM. So um, apparently, huh. uh, uh, that's what I wrote down. So, oh. But unfortunately, we, we didn't, we weren't very successful in getting many teams to publish their code uh, repos in that hackathon, hmm. regretfully. So um, there's no real way of checking, although Yuri is a pretty friendly guy. He would probably furnish us with more details. Yuri even off at NTNU in Norway. Um, anyway. Very interesting. So that's our time. What? Oh, it is. Wow. Flew fast. Whoa. Yes. You get to talk about colored inversion. Um, well, don't let me cut you off. You can you can talk us out with colored inversion. Okay. Well, it's the latest uh, leading edge tutorial. Check it out. Just came out on the first of October. There is a. Yeah, just one notebook to go with it that reproduces the figures in the paper. There are quite a few figures. Um, you know, colored inversion is a very, well, a, a rather naive approach to a um, relative acoustic impedance inversion. It works on seismic stacks. It's been around for ages. Um, as far as I know, this is the first sort of Python implementation of colored inversion. It just involves finding uh, using the well logs to find an operator which, when convolved with your seismic data, performs the inversion. Um, so it's you know it's sort of one step up from um, trace interpolation, really, because it's got a bit of information from well logs in it. So it's essentially a matching filter. So yeah, give it give it a look. It's very cheap. You know, it's very inexpensive computationally to um, apply to your data because it's just convolution and um, it's been really nicely written up by a couple of chaps from Quebec City. And um, so it's a good Canadian installation. And like all of the other tutorials, it is completely uh, open access. So you don't have to be a subscriber or anything uh, to get to it. You just go to um, seg.org and look for the leading edge October issue, and you should find it in there. It's by Martin Blouin and can't remember the other author. Uh, and by the way, I'm always on the lookout for new tutorials. So if you've got something you'd like to write about for a general audience, two pages, very easy, little bit of code, doesn't have to be Python, um, give me a shout, because I'd love to do something with you. Cool. Kaboom. Thank you. <laughs> See you uh, so next welcome. week. What are we, we going to be back next week, Matt? Uh, yeah, I hope so. I'm, I'm around for the foreseeable. So yeah, let's, let's do it. Well then, see you then. All right, take it easy. Bye. Bye. Hold on, I'm still <laughs> signing on. No, no, that's that's where you hit the button. Yeah. Bye. I seem to have <laughs> I lost my window here. Oh, wait. Say okay. Say goodbye again. I found it. Okay. Hasta la vista. Bye.